This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Hello, welcome to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Today, I'm super excited to have uh, an amazing person, human being, uh, Brendan Slocum, musician, author, teacher, award-winning teacher, by the way, uh, philanthropist, uh, really uh, a, such an interesting person. Uh, I'm so delighted that he's been able to make time for us today. And so, Brendan, welcome to Black and White. Thank you so much. It is my distinct pleasure to be here and to meet you, Stephen. Yes, yes. It's, it's, this is one of the great things about this, the, this new world of podcasting and just meeting people from, well, you're actually in Washington, D.C. today. I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia. So, and here we are, you know, we're going to be discussing something that uh, uh, means a lot to both of us in terms of, of life and, and, uh, and what we do and the impact of what we do. And so thank you. I'm super delighted. But before we go on, you know, as I, we, we talked offline, you are a man of many talents. So maybe tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, where you're from, and what you've been doing. And that, I think, will probably lead us into our multifaceted conversation today. <laughs> Absolutely. Nope, no pressure there, but thank you for that intro. Um, my name is Brendan Slocum. I originally am from Fayetteville, North Carolina is where I grew up, born in Yuba City, California back in the 70s. Um, like you mentioned, I am an educator. I'm a musician. I'm recently an author um, philanthropist, as you said, um, I'm just a, a regular old guy who has just come into a lot of blessings. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> so my book is coming out, black and white is coming out in, uh, February for black history month. You're, you're an author. You've just written, a, uh, it's a fiction, uh, the violin conspiracy. Uh, when is that coming out? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. It's coming out February 1st, 2022. Um, you know, start of Black History Month. Ta-da. Same day as mine. That's <laughs> absolutely. All right. Yes. I'll be buying yours. I'm going to pre-order yours. I I, I got to say, I, I, I've started reading your book. I'm not quite done with it yet. I'm talking from the very first chapter. Just It just sucked me in. I'm like, wow. It is well, fantastic. You. I love it. Absolutely love it. I'm going to recommend it to everyone. Um my, my, my book, The Violin Conspiracy, is a story of a young man, uh, Ray McMillan, who is a black violinist who discovers that his old family fiddle is actually a priceless Stradivarius. And it, with that discovery, it catapults him into superstardom in the world of classical music. And he goes to compete in the Tchaikovsky competition in Russia, which is basically the Olympics of classical music. And his violin is stolen. And is he going to get it back? Who took it? I guess you have to read it to find out. It's it's a great story. Amazing. So, how much of that character uh, is you? <laughs> wow, <laughs> you were the first person to actually ask me that. Um, I would say ninety-two percent is me. I, I, I had I had a hint. So <laughs> let, let's get into this because you know, obviously, this podcast is black and white. Is is really about the exploration of systemic inequality and racism and allyship. Let's go back to Ray, <laughs> <laughs> Brendan. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure you may not have had a Stradivarius, but I really wanted to get you know. And obviously, you grew up in the Carolinas, and yes, and we know uh, as a Canadian, we study about uh, race history in the United States and slavery mm-hmm. and all that, and we know that the Southern states have quite a history there. So maybe. Let's start. Let's start all the way back there in the ninety-two percent. What was your experience growing up <laughs> as a black man and child, and and how did that form you, perhaps a little? 
Wow. Um, growing up, you know, well, well, first I was uh, raised in a military town. Fayetteville is, is military. So it was, there's, there's, it's, it's very transient. I would see all kinds of people um, in the schools that I went to and everything and, and friends, you know, I, I lived on a military base for a little while and you see black, white, Asian, Latin, you know, people all the time I was always exposed to. But um, the older I got, I discovered that um, things were not quite as rosy as I had envisioned. And, you know, you have instances, little things here and there where, you know, people kind of look at you funny or, you know, you walk into a store as a teenager, especially you walk into a place and, and people just it's just like all eyes are on you for you know whatever reason. Do they like my outfit? Oh, no. Exactly. They don't like the way I look. Yeah, <laughs> this guy is suspect. He's looks like he's up to no good. I'm like, no, but I'm a nice guy. You don't know me for real. Um, yeah, things like that. And, and as I was uh, as I got older, I was I was very naive. Um especially in my college years, it, uh, it was very eye opening to discover that the discrimination was, uh, it was much more overt, you know, and when I was younger, it was, you know, it was, it was very subtle. Yeah, you're, just, Cause you're being a kid really, right? Exactly. You're like going, yeah. Oh, they're bugging me cause I have a big nose or yeah, yeah. teeth and yeah. you know, exactly. all of which I did have. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the nose is still huge. I believe the teeth got fixed a little bit. <laughs> But yeah, and and especially in college, you know, I um I, I went to a school where it, there was not a large black population, and, and and being a musician playing violin, you know, it was you know I was a rarity. I I want to say I was the only black male violinist um my four and a half years of school. Wow, I was the only well, one. Not, not surprising. Yeah, right? you know, you know, it, it didn't shock me at all. It was kind of like ah, uh, you know. So I was I was sort of an anomaly and. It was one of those things, and you hear the adages, you have to work twice as hard to get half as far, and it was the honest truth. And at one point, I was really angry. I was like, I'm working my butt off, but I don't ever seem to get the accolades that my counterparts do. And it just, you know, what's the point? It, it just, it sucks. We've all heard it, as you mentioned, uh, you know, I have to work twice as hard. It doesn't matter if you're a woman saying it about mm -hmm. their role in a corporation or here in, in indigenous people, anyone, an immigrant, you know, and I, I applied to myself, I kind of go, did I work twice as hard? I don't know about that, but I definitely had headwinds, right? But yeah. for those who are not black or people of color, can you give us a little taste of what that reality is on the ground for you? Ooh, all right. Are you sure you're ready for this? Yes. This well, is, I know this, you this are. I, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what it is, Brendan? This show is really about telling people they need to be ready. Mm. Wow. That is profound. Um, I remember instances. Wow. Jeez, uh, <laughs> I have so many I can pick from. There's the the typical, the average every day. I'm walking down the sidewalk, and this is the honest truth. And there's a, a, a white couple walking, you know, towards me. They will literally cross the street. Or if I'm walking on the left side and the female is on uh, opposite me, her partner, her boyfriend, her husband, or whatever, he will change places with her so that she does not have to walk by me. And that's just... happened to me many times. I, oh yeah, I hear you. Yeah, you know, and you're 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 going, you're you're walking by someone in a car. They lock the doors, and you hear it click, and it's like, okay, well, I'm really not trying to rob you or anything. Or you're in the grocery store or Walmart. Specifically, happened to me at Walmart once. I was looking for I don't know peanuts or something. I don't know, and um, you hear. Security, please adjust cameras to section three. Oh, all right. Well, I guess somebody's uh, doing something in section three. And then I move over to another aisle. Security, uh, adjust cameras to section four. You know what? I think I'm probably in section four. That's what it is. Okay. And just, I mean, it's it's it happens all the time. So in, in those instances, it's you're trying to get through your day and do the normal things, right? And and uh, we know we've heard about white privilege. And in my book, I've changed the term to white advantage, right? Which is, mm. could be an unconscious advantage that white people have mm -hmm. that they don't have to think about going into a store and that someone's actually monitoring them solely Absolutely. on the basis of their color of their skin, right? Absolutely. And so as uh, black people, 
and people of color and indigenous people walking and, and knowing you're always, it's on your mind, right? Mm -hmm. So so back to working twice as hard, you're thinking about things in terms of not putting yourself in a position where it could lead to problems, right? Solely on the basis of your skin color, which I think One. is... Which 100%. is crazy, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. And then you're talking about college. You know, I've had these same experiences, and I've heard many. So you're practicing, you're doing your work, you're doing, you know, you think you're killing it, maybe at a <laughs> rehearsal, whatever it is. And then, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but then the the marking or the result or the, the acclaim or the, wow, that was amazing, mm -hmm. I'm assuming is not forthcoming. Your assumption would be correct. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's, and it, it hurts. It, it really does hurt because this is something that you love. You're putting your time and energy into and you're not getting out of it what you're putting into it, at least from other people's perspectives. And, you know, I remember specifically, um, we had to audition for our seats every year in the orchestra. And I worked on, I was working on the Mendelssohn concerto. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to play this. It's going to be fantastic. I've been working all summer on this. Yeah, of course. I play it. I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I did a really good job. And I remember one girl, I'm not going to say her name. She had the reputation of never practicing. You never saw her in a practice room ever. And she wasn't very good and comes up. Yeah. She's sitting ahead of me and everybody just kind of looks like what? What, what happened? What, what did you bomb your audition? I'm like, no, I killed it. Okay. Well, I guess that's how it goes. Yeah. And it was just accepted. That's, that's what it is. And you know, you just have to deal with it and it's not fun. Not a good time. Not only that is I, I always say to the audience and listeners is this is not my opinion. These mm. are the facts, right? So right. if you look at the data and the education system that this kind of discrimination and disadvantage has an impact on young people. Yes. Right? Oh, yes. Mentally, in terms of like, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm not going, no one's recognizing me solely on the basis of their bias. Absolutely. And so people go, then you wonder why kids drop out of school, black kids mm -hmm. and people of color and so on. So there's a really deep impact and you're someone that works really hard. I think right? so. Yes. And you've put in the effort and you've done the work and then it's not recognized or rewarded that's disheartening, but you've pushed on through yes. working twice as hard or through the headwinds to get where you are. And essentially you become an accomplished musician at a professional level. Yes. Right. Yes. Through a so ton of about, hard work. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about that transition to bye-bye college, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. I've, I've persevered and now you're really a classical violinist for hire. So tell yes. us about that transition and and what that meant to you, what it meant to your family, and, and how did you consolidate that? Wow. Um, it was it was very, very liberating, I'll say. It was great. It, I, I honestly felt once I had my degree, okay, I am legit now. Um, if anyone has anything to say, I can say, here's my degree. I've gone through the program. I've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with everyone, all of my peers. I can do just as much, just as well as they can. You know, you would think that that would be enough, but unfortunately, it is not the case. Um, I can remember losing a lot of jobs just because of how I looked. I remember walking into an audition one time and, you know, I, you could just see it on their faces. They were like, well, who is this guy? Why is he here? What What is going on? And, you know, and, and I knew it didn't matter how well I played. I knew I wasn't going to get it. I knew it. And you know, that that is disheartening, like you mentioned earlier, but for some reason you you persevere. Um, I think one reason that I was so adamant about, you know, just just keeping just to keep going, to keep pushing um, is because of my teacher. She just, you know, she instilled in me. She was like, you can do this. I'm going to show you how to do this. And you're going to do it to the best of your ability. And not only did she make me believe it, she made me want to do it. I'm like, okay, someone believes in me. I can do this. It's Absolutely. Going to you were yeah. inspired. That, you know, those, uh, those people, I, when I'm picturing your teacher, I think of uh, essentially the only high school teacher that really connected with me, Mr. Nesmith, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, you know, uh, I was counting time just trying to get out of high school, right? <laughs> I, knew, I knew I was going to graduate. I was just, you know, did 60% of the work, went 60% mm -hmm. of the time, but I never missed his class. Uh, right, yeah. Because he he looked at us as human beings, regardless of our of our race, where we came from, challenged us, 
So those types of people uh, are amazing in your life and very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I have made it a point to try my best to become one of those people for, you know, all young people, not just people of color, but all young people. Well, I take that back, especially for people of color. Um, yeah. Like, you know, I, I would teach a high school guitar class and, you know, I would get the kids who had the green hair or had the tattoos and all the piercings that nobody else wanted. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to just meet you where you are. I don't care what you did in your other classes. I don't care. I don't care what these teachers say about you. I've, I've had, you know, guidance counselors say, you know, we can take this kid out of your class. He's such a bad person. It's like, I don't even know this kid. Why would I want to get rid of him if I haven't met him yet? You know, exactly. Yeah, totally. And, 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 you know, I, I meet these kids and I meet them where they are. I don't judge. I'm like, all right, what are you going to do? Just do the work, do your best, do what you can do. And, and we're good. And I, you know, would turn these kids into musicians and not only musicians, but good musicians. Yeah, and, and what they, a gift. Totally. And they would appreciate the stuff and they would hear this classical music and they would love it. Yeah, they would still like the rock and roll stuff too, but you know, they they became versatile all like overnight and, and they had a love and appreciation for music. And like you said, you never missed your teacher's class. There were kids that the only reason they came to school was was for my class, you know, and I don't know that that really was something that I feel like I have been able to give back because I know how it is. You know, it's tough. It's tough. One being a black man. It is tough. It is tough in America. It is tough. I can't say that enough. And, you know, uh, people ask me, how do you do it? I was like, you just do it. It's like, you know, I tell my white friends, I've said this when I was younger, it's like, you could not last one day in my shoes. (laughs) One, you couldn't do it. There's no way. Resilience and perseverance. (laughs) Absolutely. Both of them. Yes. Necessary tools. Totally necessary. Interesting what you were saying about your young students and the way that you saw them and your openness and your ability to reach and to expose them to something they may not have known or mm-hmm. that would connect with them in their soul and in their their innate talents. And I don't know if you read this part in my book, but it's, it's here in, in Canada. There's a number of uh, provinces, like states, who mm-hmm. uh, stream children, right? So mm-hmm. if you get to grade nine and now they're changing it to grade 10, but the adults in the room make a decision about you Mm. as to who you're going to be for the rest of your life. Right. Oh, you're going to be a plumber or an electrician. And, uh, because eh, that's what we think you, you should be. Yeah. And then they put you into that stream. And of course, not only, I I expect many of the children are not even, that's not even what they're going to become. Mm -hmm. Right. But as a result of that, they get, some of them get discouraged and, the proportion of those children that do not even graduate for high school is much higher. And guess what? You wouldn't be surprised, Brendan. Most of those are black and people of color, right? right. Shocker. So, it's a surprise, right? <laughs> while, while other students get streamed into the academic side, mm-hmm. right? And of course, have a higher propensity to graduate. And of course, the number of black people and people of color and indigenous is much lower. Right. Right. So that then also transcends to the pool of talent to be hired post education. Right. But the 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 interesting part of that is I say to myself, like, I didn't, you know, I didn't get my act together till I was about 23, right? Before, <laughs> exactly. I, really, before I really decided, wow, I like learning. I mm-hmm. like going to school. I had to learn how to learn to go through university. And, and you know, it was a big shock to me that, oh, you actually have to do the work, right? And show up <laughs> and pay attention. And if I would have listened to the people who were wanted to stream me or the people who had complete indifference if I was there or not, mm-hmm. right, which was a, a big proportion, uh, who knows how my life would have been. Right, right? absolutely. And so I, I commend you for, I mean, this is, you know, having a mentor like you and a teacher with lived experiences that lo- is looking at these children for who they are, which is young human beings that want input and be formed and the chance and the opportunity. I think that that's one of the most rewarding. So I, I, I applaud you for the work that you do. Well, thank you very much. And you hit it right on the head. It's it's all about opportunity. And you know, I, I see these kids and I look at them and I say, you know, there's it's it's going to go one of two ways. You're either going to do extremely well or you're going to get completely discouraged and it's going to be that's going to be it. And I want to do everything that I can to push you in the right direction because I know what you're going through. You can actually relate to me as a teacher. 
I've always been one of the only male black teachers that a lot of my students have had. You know, it's like I'm the first male teacher and definitely the first and only black male teacher that a lot of them have had. And, you know, introducing myself to them, not only as their teacher, but as a black man, I it's it's a responsibility I take very, very seriously. So I'm always I always make sure that I approach them. I'm always myself, but I always speak properly. I'm clean. I try to be articulate. You know, I just try to be myself. But yeah, you know what? I still like to do regular stuff. I'm, I'm, I like hip hop music. I like classical music. I like, I like sports. You know, I, I can do, I can rap. I can do that. Yeah. You know, but I can play the violin too. It's all about being yourself. You don't have to be that stereotypical person. And, um, along those lines, I, I teach a lot of young kids now, like elementary age kids, and most of them are white. And I know this is their first experience with a black person. And I really take that seriously. It's like, so when you see someone who looks like me walking down the street, you don't have to be afraid. You go into, you know, some place, you don't have to worry about it. You're not going to get robbed. You know, there are millions of people just like me and they're like me. If you trust and respect and honor me, chances are the same thing is going to go for them. So you don't have to be afraid. Amen to that. <laughs> Amen. We're just going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Cool. Okay, we're back with uh, Brendan Slocum, author, musician, violinist. I, it's like if there was a tough instrument, that, that crazy. Uh, <laughs> podcaster, author, it's amazing. We were just talking about you teaching and your approach and and uh, your openness and your excitement at molding these young children. And so I'm curious, as how did you get into teaching to start with? And then I also want to get back to the world of classical music. But how did you get into teaching? Uh, I think I knew I wanted to be a teacher starting in 11th grade. I think that's when I figured it. Um, and it's a really silly reason, but I, I wanted the summers off. You know, I just didn't want to have to do anything during the summer. I thought it was going to be a breeze. And um, my high school music teacher, Robbie Casson, she told me that I needed to audition and uh, say that I was going to go into music education. Didn't know what it was. I figured the education point, you know, okay, education is something with teaching and music. Yeah, I can play the violin. All right, cool. Um, as I went further and further along in school, you know, it was, it was fun. I just had a great time doing it. I love kids and I love learning and I love watching people learn. And, um, it was just, I just, it was natural for me. I just, you know, being able to take someone from where they are and just go further was just, I mean, it, it was life-changing. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I never said I was going to work ever. It was always, oh, I'm going to go to school today. Excellent. You know, just, just, just to be able to be around kids and watch them excel. It was, it was awesome. I loved it. And you mentioned you're one of the few black male teaching, at least in your school, you know, how's that? Why is that? Uh, from your perspective? Wow. Why is that? That is a good question. Why is that? Well, I think teaching in general is just, it's a female dominated um, area. Just, I, I don't know why, but it just kind of is. And um, I don't see very many black men wanting to go into teaching just because, you know, just maybe because of stereotypical reasons. It's like, uh, that's not for you. That's 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 for white people. That's a white people thing. You shouldn't be doing that. Interesting. What are you going to do? You know, I, I never got it, but it was fun. Very I don't cool. know. Who knows? Who knows? But yeah. there, there are not a lot of us. Not a lot of us. Yeah. Not at well, all. I, can, I can tell you, I don't know, I can't speak for the U.S., but here in Canada, so there are actually real reasons for that. Oh. So, yes. So there has been traditionally a bias in admissions to teaching colleges. So for those who want to be teachers, so the data is there. So I'm not making this up. Again, it's not my opinion. Just go get the facts. It's on the Googles, right? <laughs> and then, of course, when you become, uh, if you do get in and, and you become a teacher, uh, the data also shows that you're not hired at the same rate as white people, right? Wow. So, so in a country like Canada, uh, which has got many visible minorities, it's what we call you know people, black people, people of color, indigenous immigrant children and a, a city like Toronto where I live where the multiculturalism of the city is exponentially growing year to year mm -hmm. so there's more people of color 
and therefore the proportion of teachers who are people of color is less, right? Because we're not meeting the, there's not enough of the flow. So those are some of the things, the challenges that are happening here. And we know that, of course, bias training for non uh, BIPOC, we call it Black Indigenous People of Color mm-hmm. uh, teachers is is helping. You know, for uh, uh, great white teachers to be able to teach kids of color, mm-hmm. uh, but also we know that the data shows that people of color who are taught by other people of color, it's different. Oh yeah, right, definitely. Right, they see themselves. Yes, yes. right. They right. So there, it's not to say that non-black or people of color uh, and, and Indigenous teachers can't teach kids of any color, mm-hmm. but uh, it's about representation is really Absolutely. what we're talking about, right? Absolutely. So, so it's really interesting. So again, I don't have the, the data for the U.S., but I would assume that it's there's are similar things. Um, you know what? Uh, let, let's we're going to go with that, and I think it's probably going to be accurate. <laughs> I remember, I remember when I was student teaching. Um, the the woman that I was student teaching with, great, great teacher. She was um, amazing. Um, I remember specifically one day she was uh, disciplining or admonishing a black student. Uh, she was a white woman. Uh, she was you know talking to a black student, and I was you know just present because I was their student teaching, and after that whole scene was over, I talked to her and I was like, you know, you were really hard on him. She's like, well, what do you mean? He did this, 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 this. I was like, well, it's the way that you said it to him. You know, she said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, he's a black, a young black man, and he probably gets yelled at all the time by all of his other teachers. And you're just another white woman who's yelling at him instead of just talking to him. You literally yelled at him. She said, well, what would you do? I said, I would talk to him like a normal person, exactly. like you and I are having this conversation. Yeah, and, and she was fascinated. She was like, I never thought about that. That never crossed my mind. Hey, everyone. If you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services, positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Exactly. So this is unconscious bias, right? So uh, as you dig into my book, oh, yeah. you'll see I've got the, de- so there's data on this, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't like, you know, you're just saying it because you're observing it and you lived it, but there's actually data that proves this out, right? That yes. that black children, especially I have the data on, on black kids in school, are percentage-wise more uh, disciplined. Yes. Oh, yes. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. And, if you want to call it discipline, well, I call well, it something else. But, exactly. Well, yeah. call it what you want. Say it. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, but, but it, it's, 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 it's proven. As you know from my book, I grew up in a white family, in a white neighborhood, went to mostly all white schools. Most of the people I know are white, right? I didn't mm-hmm. grow up in the hood, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't grow, like, black people to me were what I saw on American TV, 
right? right? Which right, I right. loved. I'm going, wow, that's, but it was like a foreign world to me. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I didn't have a reference point. So I understand the white world as I've obviously matured. I got to know black people and been in black neighborhoods and, and observed, but mm-hmm. I was always kind of like more apart than part, right? Wow. Yeah. But when I, say these things to my white friends, they go, what are you talking about? <laughs> right? I go, I go, I'm talking about the reality of what's happening on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't just like my feelings or my opinion. I'm telling you, yeah. the data supports it. Yes, right? absolutely. So, anyways, this is why we're doing this, Brendan. Really, it's, this is about building bridges, right? It if is. We, if you're someone that doesn't know anything about this, mm-hmm. now we're sharing it with you. Absolutely. Okay? And there's and nothing now, to be afraid of. It's okay if you don't know. Yeah, exactly. We're going to have a different conversation, Yes. right? About the next thing, just you, what you described that you're, you had a great conversation with this other teacher and it was clear that she did not know, right? Mm-hmm. She wasn't aware. So it wasn't like she, there was a conspiracy there from her perspective, <laughs> but it right. still happened, right? And yes. the negative yes. impact on the child happened, mm-hmm. right? So, yes. so that's what's the, the most important, but thank you for that. So now you're, you know, you're amazing professional violinist, you're auditioning, I'm assuming you're getting some gigs, uh, but in your book, you're mentioning that there's an inherent racism in the classical music world. Oh, yeah. What is that for people like me who are so foreign to that world? Of course, I love classical music. Tell me your experience in terms of actually working, getting work, mm-hmm. and then also the headwinds, as we call it, or the, the working twice as hard. And what you mentioned in your fictional book, the inherent racism in the classical, what does that actually look like? I, I will say the only fiction in those sections of the book where Ray dis- experiences discrimination, the only fictional aspects are the names. That's it. Everything else is true. I just changed all the names. The wedding scene in my book where uh, Ray goes and plays at a wedding and Uncle Roger is just, you know, he takes one look at him and is like, yeah, you are not supposed to be here at all. This is not for you. You are in the wrong place. You know, and it's it's very hurtful and things like that do happen. I have gone to weddings and they look at me like, okay, catering is around back. I'm like, okay, well, I'm here to play for your wedding. Hold on a second. You know, that that was that happened regularly. I have gone to play performances where, you know, they just kind of hire you and it's like okay, well, you, yeah, we're going to need someone else to play this with you because you're not going to be able to handle this. This is above you. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and usually it ends up the people that they hire to, quote unquote, help me. I end up helping them because I have much more experience. And it's like, yeah, you should do this like this. Yeah, we're going to play this this way. No, no, no. You're coming in early here. Let's do this. Let's do this. And it turns out to be a situation where I end up helping the person that came along to help me. And I don't know if it's, I like to think that it's out of ignorance that people do these things just because they don't know. But sometimes it's just because they look at me and they say, you can't just because of the color of my skin, you are incapable of doing this. You are not up to the level that I need or I expect. And it, it used to be really hurtful, and then I'm sad to say I just got used to it. I'm like, it's expected now. I'm like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's what it is. And a friend of mine, we were playing a gig. We were playing a Messiah one year. And um, the director, he was a new director. He just, he looked at us and immediately called someone. He's like, yeah, I need you to come in and play. It's like, well, it doesn't matter. We can have all the degrees in the world. They are still always going to see us as inferior. It doesn't matter. It's like, wow, that hurts. It really sucks. But it's the truth. It's the honest truth. You know, I can play every single note, but it doesn't matter. I'll never get the chance because all you see is my skin color. Wow. Well, that's, uh, and that's, like I said, even from your, your youth. And if people aren't as resilient as you are, they can stop you in your tracks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it literally is a painful feeling. You know, it's like, well, then you think and you do a lot of self-reflection. What did I not do? What is it that I'm not doing? What are they not seeing? I've done the work. You know, I, I, I put in the time. I put in the practice. But, you know, I guess it's never going to be one of those things that I can get past. So I just have to learn to live with it. And, you know, you do. And then you 
continually prove yourself and you prove and prove and prove and then you get accepted. It's like, okay, well, I did five times as much work as the person sitting next to me and now we're on equal footing now only now yes yes i said i i know very little about the world uh, of classical music and the business and the industry but i did mm -hmm. i've heard over the years about blind auditions and, and this is not just for people of color but for who women who have been underrepresented oh, yeah. in in orchestras all over mm -hmm. the world what does that look like and what prompted that? Is that Me Too? Is it Black Lives Matter? Uh, is it just uh, uh, these orchestras are really not a reflection of the community where they are? Is it being forced on them? Can you give us a little bit of insight onto that? <laughs> Stephen, it is all the above. Everything you mentioned, that's totally what it is. It's, it's you know, I, I think women have it actually worse than men. I think black women have it worse than black men, um, especially in terms of uh, classical music. I, I think it's 1.8% of all orchestras have people of color. It's 1.8%. Wow. 1.8%. And you look at a city like New York, New York City, it is a potpourri of everything. But you look at the New York Philharmonic, you could count on one hand the number of BIPOC people in the orchestra. And it's not necessarily because we don't play well enough to make the make the cut. It's just, you know, when the auditions come around, there have been times where people will play well and they'll get a call back and then it's like okay who are we going to go with you have uh, you have to excuse my uh, terminology here we have becky over here and shaquan over here but shaquan played her butt off well you know we're going to go with becky so we don't upset the flow of what's going on and it's things like that they happen all the time and i think it is getting better for all of those reasons that that you mentioned people are beginning to demand it we're in a time now that it's like okay come on this is not the 1800s this is not the early 20th century we are in a new age where everyone we want to experience equality and we think it's time and people are beginning to head in that direction so this is a good segue so <laughs> essentially i had my own awakening around the reckoning of race yeah that that has been going on for a while, but really had an inflection point with the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. uh, do you? It sounds like you're 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 on the side of optimism that uh, inequality is being addressed. Uh, I, I'm curious to find out your experience with this reckoning and and of course the the George Floyd murder and and others. It's not, you know, just let's be clear that is not the only incident, right? right? But th that brought the world together to look at something that was always there uh, always and amplified. There. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about your feelings and your perspective and if that is informing your hope, it sounds like, for what we're, we're experiencing today? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to reference your book. When I was reading that chapter where you talked about the, the George Floyd murder, it, it really resonated with me, especially the part where you said you waited a while to watch the video. Uh, I did the same thing. It was it was extremely difficult to watch. It was just, I mean, you know, and, and like you said, it was the most high profile, but things like that have been happening for as long as we can remember. We just happened to catch that one on film for the world to see. But it, it does happen quite often. And that's part of the reason that I wrote the book on the summer of uh, 2020. I figured it was time, you know, um, it was one of those things where if normally when I would tell my stories of things that had gone on as far as discrimination, people would say, nah, that's a bit much. And there are actually parts of my book that, yeah, you might want to take this out. That's a little bit unrealistic. Ah, that's too much. That's too much. And then when George Floyd happened, it was like, whoa, this is really accurate. This is really a, a, a thing. It's like, yeah, I've been telling you that the whole time. It's just <laughs> yeah. now you you actually see it. But it was, um, I think that it was a tipping point for, like you said, the world. Um, people of color have experienced situations like that and realized that it's been going on for years and years and years. And, you know, it got to the point finally where it's like enough is enough. This actually does happen. These are real people with real feelings and real families and real goals and aspirations that will never be achieved because they are being murdered for what, you know, and as a black man, I, I, I I'm still terrified of, of, of police sometimes 
you know, I, I can't say all the time. I, I respect the police. I do. I thank you for protecting me, cops. Thank you, D.C. police. Um, but, you know, I, I made an illegal turn one time and there were four cop cars that pulled me over. I didn't have a signal on. And why does it take four police cars to give me a ticket? And, you know, and, and when the police officer approached me, um, <laughs> he said, well, you know, you made an illegal turn. I said, well, there was an arrow. He said, oh, well, you need to do your signal. Okay, well, does it take four cars to to give me a ticket for that? Well, you know, sometimes we just don't, you know, we don't know. It's like, okay, well, okay, uh, you know, I'm not going to do anything. Okay. Well, you know, sir, I will actually tell the judge that you were really respectful when when I approached you. And I'm like, am I supposed to thank you for that? Are you serious? Exactly. What? Yeah. By the what? way, can, can I share with you? I'm very scared. Right? It's like, that's the point. I am scared of moving my hands or making yes. any sudden movement, right? Absolutely. I'm not, th- dude, you're in control. You and all six of your buddies out here. I'm yeah. not doing anything. With guns. <laughs> yes, with gu- with your hands on your guns. Yeah, yes. legally allowed to use them. <laughs> allowed, you know, and it's just, and, and, and after that whole scene, the people, you know, the people are gathered around. What did you do? What did you do? I didn't put on my signal. Are you ser- what? Are you kidding? No, that's that's what happens. Wow. Yeah, it's it's real, dude. It really does happen. Um, but getting back to uh, the George Floyd murder, it just I mean, I, I think it was a very eye opening situation. It's really unfortunate that it had to happen in a way it I think it it's kind of leading the way to. Uh, having these eye-opening conversations that people are actually willing to have now, as opposed to just kind of brushing it under the rug, saying, eh, that's just a one-off, that's that's no big deal. But it's people are beginning to really understand that it's real. And, and do you find that your fellow teachers, black, white, people, uh, teachers of color, had many conversations mm-hmm. around, you know, posts uh, in 2020? And then, of course, you know, as always happens, there's pushback and I'm not even going to, you know, in the U.S., there was a lot of pushback by certain politicians and different groups and, you know, um, you know, stop focusing on the past. Let's look at the, you know, let's, you know, let's not acknowledge the past. We can't do anything about that. Let's just look forward. And and I know myself and many others are saying, Mm -hmm. well, you actually have to acknowledge the truths that happen. That's kind of important. Where do you think we are from your perspective in terms of 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 change and understanding like when's the when's the real action going to happen you know there to be fair to police there's police boards that have made some reforms and you know maybe uh, this call for defunding the police has you know mm-hmm. which I, I i don't like the term myself but the, the there's moves toward reforming police and laws and right uh, we changed some of the criminal laws to let people out of jail who were there for three strikes you're out for petty crimes of drug possessions so it seems like there's there is like what you're saying there is a movement in the right direction and am i am i sensing from you that you think that that's really happening and there's some hope there I do. I I am a perpetual optimist. I, you know, I like to put my energy into being optimistic and believing that good things will happen. I I, I honestly do. And I think that we are in the very beginning stages of seeing some real, real change occur. Um, I think these conversations are very, very difficult. It's like the people that these conversations are aimed at are, it's like the, the, the script has been flipped. It's like now you are in an uncomfortable position. This is where we have been our entire lives and you're experiencing what we go through every single day. And it's very uncomfortable, but it's very necessary. It's very necessary if any real change is going to occur. And I think we're in the very beginning stages of it. And I, I do see, I do see some progress being made. I see, um, I see the willingness for progress to be made. And I think we're, we're taking steps. We're in the beginning stages of taking the right steps. Very good. This isn't my line, but I love it. And I've used it in my book, but it was someone saying it's, it's time for people to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Absolutely. I love that quote. I love right. It. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not the one that came up with it, but I love it and I use <laughs> it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your podcast because I love the, the name of it. Uh, just launched and I listened to the first episode. Uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, it's always nice to listen to two creative people, uh, fellow musicians <laughs> talk about their craft. And of course, you guys go into you know, you almost have a little shorthand with each other because you have similar experiences, which is good. But it, the podcast is, is on Evergreen Podcast. It's called 
how music can save your life. And really, yes. I think that the seed of this goes back to the divergent point where you chose music and some of your friends uh, didn't choose music. Mm -hmm. they, they chose. And again, we talked about a lot of issues about youth in school, especially black youth, and how they're treated and how they're streamed. And, you know, and you decided to take the path of learning. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the, your podcast and where the seed of that title comes from? Well, How Music Can Save Your Life is literally, it's a literal title. Um, music did save my life. Kids that I grew up with, seriously, we, you know, we would play together all from the time we were little kids to teenagers and that the, the path just split. You know, I was lucky enough. It was a blessing that I had music and my siblings did as well. And that was our pursuit. Whereas other kids who weren't lucky enough to get into the music programs, you know, they would just hang out. They would, you know, get in with the wrong crowd. They would just mix with bad people and do really bad things. And I would see them go to jail and it's like, oh man, that really sucks. And when, when they get shot during a robbery or something crazy or go to jail for, you know, robbing a store. And I look and I think back and I'm like, these are the same kids that I used to play with, same kids that we used to go to high school with. What happened to them that didn't happen to me you know am i just lucky and and, and I, I it always goes back to it's because of music it was because i had something to do and i had something that was always encouraged and nurtured um you know if not by my my teachers by my family and and everything in between but um music really really is a life-saving force like I, I mentioned earlier with um kids who would come to my class the only reason they would come to school would be to go to my class I've had kids tell me, you know, I was on the verge of committing suicide until I had your class. And that's the only reason I came to school. And I would see you every day and we would have so much fun and we would play music and 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 you wouldn't judge. You were just, you know, you were always just there if I needed to say something to you or if I didn't feel like doing this or doing that. It was cool because you were just that cool guy. And, you know, my guitar, I loved it. And my violin, I loved it. And I could play this cello and it was great. You know, music really is a life-saving force. And I, I want everyone to know that it is for everybody. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter your age. doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. doesn't matter the type of music. Just get into it because it will do something for you. It does something for everybody. Yes, we're talking about systemic racism, systemic inequality, but it's not just about race, right? This is happening with with gender. It's happening mm -hmm. with economics, right? And, and I think that we all have a role to not just be responsible for you know, for lack of better, our people, if we will, black people, I'm a black person, you're a black person. But, you know, I'm here in Canada, I'm thinking about indigenous people, right, right who have been, right. right, and women in terms of, you know, I'm a professional, I could see that women have not been treated equally in the workplace, etc. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think this is the bigger conversation, and I'm glad we're we're having it. Absolutely. I mean, you just, uh, that could be your third book right there. Everything you just said, it's just, it, it, it's, it's, this is one of those things that people, a lot of people just don't think about until it's presented to them, you know, and, and the way that you're presenting this with this podcast and your book and everything, it's one of those things that's really going to start opening up a lot of doors for conversations with people who just never even took the time to think about it. So, we, like I said, we could talk for hours, you and I, and I'm sure <laughs> we're going to do, do this again. So tell us about what's ahead for you. What are you hoping for you as in your career? What are you hoping for in terms of your community? You're also doing some work with a charity that a nonprofit that you've created in uh, with, with the Philippines. So maybe mm -hmm. tell us a little bit more about that and, and kind of your your next steps. Wow. Um, I started my, my nonprofit, Hands Across the Sea, back in, oh, wow, it was in the early 2000s. And it was from a trip that I had taken to the Philippines with a, with a musical group. Going back to the music thing, music has afforded me the opportunity to travel. Never thought in my life I would ever go to Asia for anything. I thought that was a one-time thing, and I've been like eight times now. People need help, you know, and and through my music, I was able to actually help people. I would raise money and, and, and get things for people over in the Philippines, you know, like dental, medical, just housing, clothes, shoes, food, whatever people need, because, you know, it's it doesn't cost a great deal. It doesn't cost us a lot. But for them, um, you know, it's life changing. Um, 
I this 2021 slash 2022 has just been incredible for me with the book coming out and the podcast and everything. It's been amazing. I am currently I just finished the manuscript for my second book. Hopefully it will be approved. Fingers crossed. And uh, I'm looking at topics for my third book. Can't give anything away, but I think I have something and I'm really excited to start working on it. Uh Okay. (laughs) And I'm going to be doing a lot of traveling um, for promotion for the book and book signings. And uh, I'm still playing in the Nova Symphony in Virginia. Um, We have some concerts coming up in the spring of 2022. I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, I'm just looking to go along for the ride and accept everything that comes my way. And I am digging every second of it. And I love it. I love it. I love it. Being able to meet people like you and, you know, be a guest on this podcast. These are the highlights. This is the stuff that I absolutely love. And, you know, it's it's necessary. And I love that you're doing this. And I am truly honored to be your guest today. My guest today has been Brendan Slocum. So he has um, his book, The Violent Conspiracy. Uh, now that I know it's 92% him. <laughs> <laughs> His podcast, you can catch it on Evergreen Podcast. It's called How Music Can Save Your Life. You can also go to his website at brendanslocum.com and lots of great information. And uh, he is an amazing professional musician. So hire him. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 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 Exactly. Exactly. I can actually play. I do. I really do play. He doesn't need an an assistant. He can actually do it himself, right? I'll help your assistant out. That's a a tuxedo with a bow tie because he's a violinist, not the caterer. I got my own tux. I do. I do. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We need, everyone needs beautiful music and uh, Brendan makes beautiful music on stage and in his classroom for his students and obviously uh, as a writer. So we're looking for it. Brendan, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to rate us. I'm sure you're going to give us the biggest rating. Also, be on the lookout for my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural take on white advantage. Now, you can also find me on Twitter at DorseyBNW. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to our studio engineer, John Kreichley, producer and sound designer, Noah Fouts, and executive producers, Gerardo Orlando and David Allen Moss. I'm Stephen Dorsey reminding all of us that we can be better, do better, so we can all live better together. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.